common uh, metaphor lots of people have talked about and I've used already many times here on Sunday mornings as I preach is the idea of a gemstone of sorts, or let's go with a diamond. A diamond is beautiful because of the way that it's cut. It's not necessarily beautiful all in of itself, but what, when we think of a diamond, what we think of that glittering gemstone, we think of because of the way that it is cut, the different facets, the way the light reflects through it, and we see the beauty of the stone. And it's almost like the more we turn it, the more beautiful it seems. And so like a diamond, there are many things in the Bible that the more you keep turning them over and over, the more different facets you're able to see. And the more different facets you're able to see, the more they become beautiful in your eyes. In Ruth chapter 3, we see many different facets of faith. Many different facets of faith. I was helped a lot by one scholar, pastor named Christopher Ash this week, and he drew out so many different facets of faith. Uh, and we're just going to look at a few this morning. We're going to look at three different ones as we work through Ruth chapter 3. But as we consider this whole topic of faith, it, it can be a bit of a struggle for us. We understand in theory, uh, we even talked about this as we went through Ephesians. You know, what is faith? Well, it's complete trust. Complete trust. But there are many different facets of faith that we can look at. We can turn it over and over in our hands. We can turn it over and over in our minds. And I think as we do that, it becomes only more and more beautiful. And even as we look at Ruth chapter 3, as we turn it over and over, we'll see how it becomes more and more even applicable for us today. But the beauty of Ruth chapter 3 almost gets lost in the fact that it's simply a fascinating story. Like a great recipe, great stories contain a few great ingredients. A few great ingredients. What are some ingredients of a great story? Bravery, romance, risk, intrigue, Tension, secrecy, shock, conflict, resolution, hope. Ruth chapter 3 is only 18 verses, and I think it contains all of those. It's a great story. And great stories also have great characters. In Ruth chapter 3, we at least get versions of some typical characters that you would see in great stories. We have a matchmaker. We have... A damsel in distress and a knight in shining armor. But Ruth chapter 3 is far from a cookie cutter story. If it were released as the next Disney uh, offering, I bet it would raise some eyebrows. Because it is a great story and it is a love story. But first, there's so much in it that will sound very strange to our 21st century ears. There's things that we might have no idea what's going on because we just are simply so far removed from the context which this is written in. And even if we understand it, we might just think it's downright weird. And that's okay. Secondly, and maybe more shockingly, especially with the many young families here, 
If this were a new movie that were released and you were watching it as a family, I bet as parents there would be many moments where your hands would be hovering over you know, the fast forward button and you're thinking this could go south quickly. There is tension right through Ruth chapter three. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this story in Ruth chapter three might be kind of echoing other stories that you've heard that do go in tragic directions, tragic places. The Bible doesn't pull punches. Uh, It doesn't always paint people in the best light. Uh, God can work in and through tragedy, but we can think of stories where, you know, people are alone at night and it goes a direction where we are not anticipating. Now, to just preface it, although there is tension all the way through Ruth chapter 3, nothing risque happens. If anything, Ruth chapter 3 is an example of honor and purity, but it feels tense the whole way through. And I think the author wants us to feel that. And so as we jump into Ruth chapter 3, I don't normally like to give too many disclaimers or qualifiers, but I think a few disclaimers and qualifiers, qualifiers are helpful. And you've heard me say this before, but a good principle always to think about when we're reading the Bible is not everything that is narrative is normative. Say that again. Not everything that is narrative is normative. So just because this is a story that happens, uh, we should not apply this immediately to be dating advice. Okay, ladies, if you start uncovering guys' feet while he's sleeping alone in a field, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, don't do that. Uh, guys, if you go, you know, Woodland, there's a good field next door. If you go fall asleep in the field and you just assume the woman of your dreams will, you know, be there when you wake up, again, bad advice. That is not the purpose of Ruth chapter 3. And if you have never read the book of Ruth before and you're like, what is this guy talking about? Buckle up. We're going to get into it. But that is not it. Narrative does not equal normative. Just because it's a story doesn't mean that it is uh, prescriptive. It's not... uh, necessarily how we are to conduct ourselves but we'll see we'll get into it and on that note a second qualifier is we need to avoid speculation you know sometimes it's fun to speculate to kind of wonder especially the things that aren't incredibly clear to us maybe even aren't incredibly clear to those that have been reading this story for thousands of years but it's too easy sometimes with stories like this that are so far removed from our context to go down a dangerous road of speculation, to read between the lines but fail to read the lines themselves. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read this passage. We're gonna consider what it means. Because even with all these complexities, we could be at, at risk for missing the forest for the trees. And as tricky of a passage as it is, it is a great passage. It is a passage in God's word, and it is God's word for us this morning. And so we see, as we, as we get into it, this is my prayer, that you would see Ruth chapter 3 is an amazing story of true faith being exercised in pursuit of redemption. And that'll be our big idea for Ruth chapter 3 as we track along. Faith is a pursuit of redemption. As we consider this big idea. I want to do it even a little bit different than we typically do. Uh, I'm just going to go through it section by section, just telling the story. And as we do it, I want to consider a few of those different facets of faith. We'll turn them over in our minds and consider what they mean for us today. And as we think about these facets of faith, these matter for everybody here. 
whether you're a Christian or not. Because we all put our faith in something. We all put our faith somewhere or we all put our faith in someone. We are all pursuing refuge and redemption somewhere. And so as you turn to Ruth chapter 3 in your Bibles, I'm just going to give us a little bit of background, which I think helps uh, set the stage for Ruth chapter 3, a little bit of review where we've been. We've looked at that there's four chapters in Ruth. We are halfway through. We're just starting chapter 3. Chapter 1 we called episode 1, the return. Remember, this was the time of the judges. Little historical context. This is a dark time in history. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what happens? We get this stage set right at the beginning of Ruth, chapter 1, that a guy named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his two sons leave Bethlehem, their homeland, because there's a famine, and they go to Moab in search of food. The sons get married. Things seem like they're going well, but then tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Both sons die. And this leaves Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, who married the sons, childless widows. And so they set off to return back to Bethlehem. They hear there's food back in Bethlehem. The famine is over. Naomi convinces Orpah to stay back with her family, but Ruth's not so easily convinced she won't leave Naomi. She's counting the cost. She devotes herself completely to Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth return. They get to Bethlehem, but as Naomi returns, we we see that she is just a shell of the woman that she was before. She says that she went away full, but God brought her back empty. But still, at the end of chapter 1, if you remember, there was a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope still existed because she still had Ruth. And then we get this sort of cryptic last verse in chapter 1. It says that they were there at the beginning of the barley harvest. We see this theme of food and refuge track the whole way through the book of Ruth. And that bridges us right in to chapter 2 or episode 2, which is the refuge. Even with this glimmer of hope, we considered a couple weeks ago that this scene is still bleak. The scene is still dark. Nobody is there to care for Ruth and Naomi. There's no one there to protect them, and they have no food. And so Ruth goes out to glean, which is picking up the scraps behind those that are harvesting in the fields. We talked about how there's this hot, hard, and not necessarily safe work. But she counts the cost. She's motivated out of desperation, hunger, and love for Naomi. And what do we see? We see that she happened to get to the field where this guy named that Boaz owned. And then we see that Boaz just so happened to show up. And this glimmer of hope starts to shine bright. Because what does Boaz do? He starts demonstrating amazing kindness, protection, provision. He says, don't just get the scraps. Come up with my workers. He gives her water. He gives her more food than she can eat. He gets his workers to even just leave portions there for her to take. So he starts demonstrating remarkable kindness. And then we see episode two ends with Ruth bringing all of this food back to Naomi. He gives her the amazing news that she was working in this field. And the guy who owns it, his name is Boaz. But then uh, Naomi gives even a better piece of news. She says, Boaz is one of our redeemers. 
Now, that's a cryptic uh, phrase for us today, but again, to Israelites at the time, this was the most hope that they've seen yet. A redeemer was a close relative who saw it as their task to care for those who were left behind when a relative dies, that, that even if they were able to marry the widow of the deceased to provide an heir and really a future. Again, this is strange to our ears, but amazing hope for Ruth and Naomi. They were facing near extinction of their family line. And so more than a husband, a redeemer is something special. It's more than companionship. This was hope for a future. And we see that the scene ends with this phrase that leaves some question marks in their mind. You know, I thought things, you know, it seemed like Ruth and Boaz really hit it off. Why was there no second date? And we get that uh, hammered down here in the very end of chapter 2. It says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That's great. They're close. But that's not future hope. So they're still left with a bit of a tension as we get, as we cruise through episode 1, the return. Episode 2, the refuge. And here we are, episode 3, the redeemer. Let's work through episode 3, the redeemer. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? You see Naomi demonstrate kindness right away. Naomi, who again in chapter 1, you know, wished the same thing for Ruth, that she would find rest. And so here she, they've, they've made it home, they're together, and she starts to work out a bit of a plan here. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Naomi's got a finger on the pulse, and she knows what's going on in town. She knows who Boaz is. She knows what he's up to. She knows he's going to be winnowing tonight. And so she starts to get a bit of a plan going. She has a bit of an idea, not only what's going on, but she has a bit of a plan moving forward. And so she is our matchmaker in the story. We can think of lots of famous stories where there's a matchmaker involved. Well, I don't know about lots. I could think of two. I could think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? Matchmaker, matchmaker, making the match. Isn't that that one? Okay. Uh, and then Mulan. That's the other one. I, there's probably more. But she's our matchmaker in this story. She's thinking about Ruth. She cares about Ruth. Remember, a minute ago, she was just a shell of a woman. She was broken. She came back empty. She wasn't even remembering her, daughter, her daughter-in-law who was with her. She said she was empty. But now she starts to have some hope. She has faith that things are going to turn around. And so as we look at Naomi first, I want to look at this first facet of faith. And that is faith is active. Faith is active. Now this is an important part of the story. Because Naomi and Ruth could affirm that God is sovereign. That's what we believe. God is sovereign over all things. He is in control. But it would be a distortion of an understanding to see no human responsibility. If, if Naomi and Ruth said, oh, God's sovereign, we'll just park it here, and, you know, if he wants, the, a husband will show up. He'll, he'll, come, he'll come get us. Well, that would not be trusting in God's sovereignty. That would be testing God's sovereignty. And so we see here right from the beginning that an important truth through this whole passage is that faith is active. It's not just a feeling. 
It is involved. And we see Naomi is quite involved as she lays out her plan. So here's her plan. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. And do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, we got a lot to go over here. Uh, Naomi says, first, wash, clean yourself up. Second, anoint yourself. Some translations may just say, put on some perfume. Uh, But essentially, uh, for the essential oils people, this is your proof text, okay? Anoint yourself with oil, you know, get yourself cleaned up, smell good, it's good advice. Uh, Put on your cloak. Now, what she's talking about about this cloak is uh, speculated. I mean, some people think it was a bridal cloak of some sort that she was encouraging her to put on so that You know, when she sees Boaz, Boaz will know, I know what's up, right? She wants to get married. Now, remember, though, they were very poor. And so there's reason to maybe wonder, maybe it wasn't something like that. But maybe there's a practical suggestion. I read some commentaries that thought that. You know, all she's saying is just put a cloak on. It's cold. You're going to be out there all night. You know, dress warm. But I lean this way. I think this is uh, why she says to put on a cloak, that it would signify that Ruth is no longer mourning. Remember, Ruth's husband died as well. And so she very well could have been in this period of mourning where her clothes and her appearance would have reflected this state that she's in. Maybe that's why there was no second date with Boaz. Again, we're in speculation territory. But either way, she's cleaned up, she smells nice, and she has some fresh clothes on. And then Naomi says, go down to the threshing floor. Now, again, to our ears, that doesn't necessarily tell us a lot, but the threshing floor was generally a flat rock or at least a flat section of ground uh, that was slightly elevated, and it was used for winnowing. We've already been told Boaz was going to be winnowing. Now, what is winnowing? It's when the farmer would go to the threshing floor, and he would take his pitchfork, and he would toss uh, his harvested crop up in the air, and the evening breeze would come, and carry away the lighter material, and the heavier would fall. Now, the heavier is what they were after, the grain. So up goes the harvested crop, the husk and the chaff would get blown away by the wind, and the grain would fall down. And so just keep tossing and tossing. And this would generally be done in the evenings here, again, when the breeze would pick up. Uh, And again, it's just so that they could get the grain that they were after. Now, the threshing floor, not everyone had a threshing floor. It was generally a communal place. Uh, It wasn't a private spot. It was a shared area. The best place for threshing is where everybody would go. And so since it wasn't a private spot, farmers would often sleep by their crops to protect it from being stolen. Uh, It makes sense, especially, again, in a time where uh, we certainly aren't at the moral peak of society, the time of the judges. On all that, too, threshing floors were also not the safest place to be. I mean, they had a bit of a party culture that would go with them because it's harvesting time. Uh, and so they were not safe for everyone to be there, especially in the time of the judges. There are other passages in the Bible that give us very clear and vivid pictures of the kind of immoral things that would happen at the threshing floor. And so if you can imagine it, that's what's happening. But Naomi's plan is for Ruth to go to the threshing floor. 
to wait for Boaz to be done eating and drinking and to keep an eye where he lays down. Now, again, speculation. Why, why does she have to keep an eye? Honestly, I think just make sure she doesn't wake up the wrong guy. That's, it makes sense, right? And I mean, it's silly, but it's, if you think about the dangers involved, that's a very important detail, right? Because we've heard about Boaz. He's a worthy man. He's a man of character. We saw that in chapter 2. But certainly the same couldn't be said for everybody. So she says, keep an eye on this guy. And then it gets bizarre. We talked about this very briefly already. She says, uncover his feet and lie down. All right, what's going on? Again, we are very far removed from this context. But we can understand from this text and from other texts in the Bible that this is some kind of ancient Near East marriage proposal. There's symbolism here. Most people think that's exactly what's going on. There's, just, there's some kind of symbolism that goes with uncovering feet. We're going to see next chapter there's something about handing someone a sandal. There's just symbolic gestures that are done to, to make promises, to ask things. And so that's what we're seeing here. And, and as she asks uh, a question of Boaz soon, I think we'll see even clearer exactly what this request looks like. And so as strange as all of this sounds to our ears, apparently it sounded very acceptable to Ruth. Because look in verse 5, it says, And she replied, All that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Faith is active. Ruth says she'll do it, and she does it. But here again, there's another place where we can get lost in the weeds. Another part that people like to speculate on. Big question. The word is right there. Is Boaz drunk? I mean, it says the word drunk. Kind of past tense of drink. Sounds like it could be right, right? I think we're, again, reading in between the lines if that's exactly where we go. Not that he couldn't have been. I mean, he was not a perfect man. But we do know about his character. Again, he was a noble man. He was a worthy man. And we see the way that he conducts himself through the rest of his chapter and, and really through the rest of the book. That he was a man of character. And so we can't know for certain. But I think a helpful clarifier in all of this is these exact words are used in many other places that are not talking about drunkenness at all. There is a such thing as enjoying a good meal and being happy. And I think that's what this passage is saying. I think it's a misstep to read into the narrative uh, that, that there's something more going on here. But we see Ruth sneak up, sneaky Ruth. She gets there, she uncovers his feet, and she lies down. So again, let's acknowledge the risks that Ruth is taking here. This could go bad on so many levels. I mean, Boaz seems like a solid guy, but I'm sure we can all think of scenarios where somebody seems trustworthy, but then they prove that they are absolutely not. But again, I think this demonstrates the pattern that we've seen through Ruth the whole way through this book, that she is willing to count the cost. Right? This is this first facet of faith, the fact that faith is active. And she's again, she's not waiting around for something to happen, she is very much active here. And why? It's because she needs a redeemer. She needs help. 
And if we combine those two things, the need for a redeemer and this active faith, we get to our second facet of faith. We turn over that gemstone in our minds, so to speak. And we see the second facet of faith is this. Faith is grounded in promises. Faith is grounded in promises. Because we see here, her faith is not merely wishful thinking. Her faith is grounded not only in the provisions of God's law that says a close relative should redeem those who have been left behind, but she also is leaning heavily on Boaz that he will continue to be an agent of God's kindness. Remember, that's what he prayed for her in Ruth chapter 2, verses 12. It says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Remember those words. We see this as Ruth begins to divert from Naomi's plan. Verse 8, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. It's shocking. Not sure what startled him. Maybe the universal experience that we all know that, you know, his feet are cold. I, I read one commentary that thought the whole reason for the uncovering feet was just to wake him up. It was like a delayed alarm clock. Right? Wait till his feet were cold. But Boaz is half asleep. He's, it's probably pitch black. And so what does he say in verse 9? Who are you? I don't know. I imagine it is a yell. Maybe it was a whisper. He's at the threshing floor. There's other people there. Who are you? What are you doing here? But Ruth doesn't waste a second. Again, she's not looking for a husband. She's looking for a redeemer. Her faith is that he will act. He will act in line with God's laws. He will act in line with loving character. Again, this is more than wishful thinking. This is grounded in promises. And we see this, how she answers. And she answered in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. You, for you, are a redeemer. This is a massive pivot point in the story because this is where she deviates from Naomi's plan. Naomi didn't tell her to say this. Naomi said, you get there, he'll tell you what to do. But we see right away, what does she do? She identifies herself as his servant. Remember, this is a promotion from what she talked about herself last time. When they met in the field, she said, I'm a foreigner. I'm not even one of your servants. Now, she says, I'm your servant. And then she gets bold. She asks that he would do for her what he prayed for her would happen. He prayed that God would provide for her, that she would find refuge under his wings. And she says, protect me. Spread your wings over me. Cover me like a bird covers its young. You are a redeemer. And this is likely where some of that symbolism comes in of uncovering feet because we could also tr uh, translate this line where she says, spread your wings over your servant. It also could mean spread the corners of your garment over your servant. Again, as a, a symbol of the love and care that would happen. And again, we see this image throughout the Bible, even when God talks about his own people, that when he would redeem his people, he would cover them in all of their shame and their nakedness with the corner of his garment. 
And so this image is consistent with uh, what the original audience would have understood here. And so she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Remember, there's a lot going on here. She's not just proposing marriage. It's, it is that, but it's also more than that. This also includes taking the whole responsibility of what it means to be a redeemer. This includes caring for Naomi. Ruth has baggage. But Boaz doesn't even hesitate. Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now again, we could read this verse in a few different ways as well. But we see that what he's doing, he's applauding her for her kindness. And not to him, but to Naomi. Because Ruth could have gone for a younger man. She could have gone for someone that was rich or poor. But she is pursuing Boaz. And this isn't to say that Boaz was wildly old or ugly. But her motivation is to pursue him because he is a redeemer. So more than again, just a husband, this would mean love being demonstrated for Naomi and Ruth. So her love for Naomi is on display. Boaz acknowledges that. Then verse 11 says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I feel like this is such a breath in the story. Must have been such a relief for Ruth. Her heart was probably beating like crazy. It says, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Again, we've considered this already, but Boaz was described as a worthy man in chapter two. Same word. And here, Ruth is described as a worthy woman. Again, if you're familiar with the Bible, this may start to make you think of other passages in the Bible, maybe most notably Proverbs 31. It's only mentioned a few other times in the Bible, this whole idea of being a worthy woman. And so Boaz is saying that not only to him, but to everybody, she is not a foreigner to them. She is not a poor, childless widow. She is a worthy woman. She has received a new identity. And so if we dip into the story right here, we understandably see how far removed we are from this situation, but these facets of faith are incredibly similar to what it means to have faith today. Because we don't find redemption in laws. We don't find redemption even in our relationship. Because the need that we find ourselves in isn't just circumstantial. We find ourselves standing in a place of judgment. We stand with the weight of our sin because we all sin against God. We've all turned our own way. We've all done our own thing. We all want to be Lord over our own life. And the sin that we commit, the sin that we carry, puts us at an impossible distance from God. Our sin puts up a wall that keeps us from being at peace with God. He is perfect. He is perfectly holy. And so our sin absolutely separates us from communion with him. And so the place that each of us find ourselves in is a place where we need redemption. We need someone to save us. And this is why the gospel literally means good news. Because although our sin is very bad news, 
God made a way for us to be made right with him. That is very good news. And it isn't by us going, uh, it isn't, you know, us trying to go find uh, a redeemer. The good news of the gospel is that God found us in our sin. That he would send a redeemer to come to us in our desperation, in our need. That Jesus would come, his own son, to live a sinless life. The life that we could never live and yet die the death that you and I deserve. To take our place. That's the hope of the gospel, that we could be counted as righteous, not because of our righteous acts, but because of Jesus' righteous acts. That he would take our place. He would take on our sin and credit us with his righteousness. That's why the gospel is good news. And it wasn't just simply that exchange, as if that wasn't enough. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He defeated death Itself, He demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied and that by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, receiving that free gift of grace, we could find redemption. We could be made right with God. And so this is why faith is active. It's not just a feeling. Faith in Christ is active. It is turning from our sin. Turning from our sin and trusting in Christ completely turning from our rebellion that we so naturally cling to and turning to christ instead it's admitting that we bring absolutely nothing to the table it's giving up trying to earn our salvation and yet amazingly receiving it in full to actively trust christ isn't demanding that god saves us because of our merit it's taking god at his word It is active, but it is grounded in the promises that he's made. This faith is a pursuit of redemption simply because God said he would do it. But I want you to hear me clearly. It's not your pursuit that saves you, but it's your redeemer who saves you. And so, friend, if you're here and you don't know this kind of hope today, I'm asking you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus as your redeemer. We see glimmers of hope throughout the book of Ruth, like that first time that they hear, oh, he's one of our redeemers. If you're here this morning, you've never heard the good news of the gospel. This is that more than a glimmer of hope. This is full-blown hope, real hope for you today. Because the situation we find ourselves in apart from Christ is bleak. But the gospel, the good news is that there is a redeemer. That there is hope. And we don't solve the biggest problem in our lives, which is sin, by simply ignoring it. It doesn't make it go away. And so I'd encourage each of you here to consider your own life. Take an honest look at your life and ask that question, where am I putting my faith? Where am I actively looking for redemption? We're all doing it. I guarantee it. Where are you putting your faith? And if you haven't, put it in Christ. Find refuge in Christ. Find redemption in Christ. This is more than an insurance policy. This is more than wishful thinking. And as we think about this 
this trajectory we've been on, as we've looked at these facets of faith, we see faith is active, we see faith is grounded in promises. That brings us right to this third facet of faith, which is essential. And it's this, that faith is effective. Faith is effective. This is a major turning point in the book of Ruth. Major turning point that hope becomes sure. Even though in the story of Ruth, there's a bit of a glitch in the plot that happens here. Verse 12, it says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, that's Boaz speaking, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. The plot thickens, right? There's someone else, there's a closer relative. For a moment we're thinking, oh no, is all hope lost? But there's still good news here because hope is sure. What does he go on to say? Remain tonight and in the morning, if he, this other redeemer, will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. This whole story has led right to this point. Ruth's work is done. Whether it's this other guy, or even if he won't, she gets this amazing promise. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Her faith has been active, it's grounded in promises, and now it's becoming sure. This faith is becoming effective, even if it's not fully realized yet. And it says, so she lay down at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her, all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This chapter began with Naomi's plea and prayer that Ruth would find rest, and it ends with a man not seeking rest until the matter is settled, where they will be redeemed. It is sure. It is final. And we see this scene draws to a close with essentially the down payment of redemption to come. She's sent home with, again, a ton of food. Again, based on what uh, people think this six measures is, probably 60 to 90 pounds of grain she goes home with again Ruth is strong she's a worthy woman and she carries home all of this barley to Naomi and remember I love the language that's used here in this passage because not long ago what did Naomi lament she said she went away full but came back empty this exact same phrase is used but reversed that Ruth comes back not empty handed to Naomi the book of Ruth started in pitch black. That was the backdrop. But here, there is sure hope of redemption. This is a light that has grown from a glimmer to full-blown hope. 
And so here at the end of chapter 3, it, it ends, honestly, a little bit unresolved. It's just, well, we'll wait, see what, see what Boaz does. He'll take care of it. He won't rest. But we see that that doesn't mean that the situation is hopeless. Far from it. Hope is guaranteed. This is the same place that you and I find ourselves in, brothers and sisters. Faith in Christ is active. It is grounded in the promises that God has made to save us, and faith is effective. What Jesus did on the cross does not demand that we need to do more to earn good standing with God. What Jesus did on the cross proclaims that it is finished. The biggest problem that you and I face is our sin, and it's been dealt with. There's amazing freedom in that. Against us stands a debt that you and I could never afford to pay. But it's been dealt with. It's been paid in full because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Our standing before God is decided, but it's not yet fully realized, at least not until our faith is turned to sight and we know him fully. But the effectiveness of our faith for us today, this faith in Christ offers us sure hope for the day that we know when we will each stand before God. And rather than it being our rap sheet that is our metric that we hang our hat on, we can be counted as righteous because Jesus was righteous for us. And so Christian, look to Christ today. Take a fresh look at what it means to give him your all, to put in an active faith that is grounded in promises and a faith that because of all that Christ has done is ultimately effective. It's an amazing statement that Boaz gives to Ruth. Right? I will redeem you. But how much more amazing of a statement is it that Christ lived out exactly that for you. That while you and I were busy sinning and rebelling against him, that he said from the cross, I will redeem you. He has changed your status. He has brought you in close to him and he gives you the amazing guaranteed hope for the future. Anchor your faith in Christ today because he is your redeemer. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can say that with confidence. That it's not our merit that earns salvation. It's not our good works. It's not even our good intentions. But the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, thank you that when we couldn't come to you, you came to us. God, thank you for the fact that we can have a sure hope because of what Christ has done. As we eat this bread and drink the cup, God, would you help us to take a fresh look at our Redeemer, to pause and consider the hope that we have in Christ.
that this faith is effective because of what Christ has done. We thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.